Welcome to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, where we are committed to providing our community with voices of conscience from an ethical perspective. My name is Annika Lister-Stroop. I am one of the pastors here at Westminster Presbyterian Church, located on the Nicolette Mall in beautiful downtown Minneapolis, and I will be moderator of today's forum. If you are listening to us on Minnesota Public Radio, we welcome you, and we invite you to visit us in person in the future. Details about upcoming town hall forums can be found online at www.ewestminster.org. We also invite you to contact the Minneapolis Public Library for information about book lists and dialogues in connection with the issues in this forum. It is a pleasure to welcome to the Westminster Town Hall Forum today a man who has made it his mission to provide free health care to vulnerable and underserved populations. Dr. Pedro Jose Greer holds among his many titles that of Assistant Dean for Homeless Education at the University of Miami School of Medicine. His pioneering work with poor, homeless, and migrant populations in that city has won him three Papal Medals, a knighthood, and the Presidential Service Award. In 1994, Time magazine named Dr. Greer one of America's young leaders under 40. His expertise led the George Bush Sr. and Bill Clinton administrations to seek him as an advisor on health care issues. As an intern at Jackson Memorial Hospital, Pedro Jose Greer had already experienced the death of his younger sister when he first experienced the death of a patient, a man who died of tuberculosis alone in 1984. Knowing how his own family had connected and grieved over the loss of his sister spurred Dr. Greer to create a support system for people dealing with health issues in the absence of a network of loving friends and relatives. Connecting with a local shelter, Dr. Greer founded Camillus Health Concern. Medical students in Miami now have a required rotation through that clinic which serves over 10,000 homeless patients a year. Dr. Greer retains his volunteer position as medical director there, and he also founded the St. John Bosco Clinic in 1991. His autobiographical book about working with the poor, titled Waking Up in America, is being made into an HBO movie with Andy Garcia. Dr. Greer has also published widely in his field of gastroenterology and on issues of policy and poverty in the United States. He practices at Mercy Hospital in Miami. We have invited Dr. Greer to speak to us today about health care issues that also resonate in our communities. How should the health care needs of poor, immigrant, or other vulnerable populations be met? What are the ramifications to society as a whole if those needs are not met? Ladies and gentlemen, please help me welcome today's Westminster Town Hall Forum guest, Dr. Pedro Jose Greer. Thank you. Thank you for that introduction. My mother actually wrote that introduction in. 
had it set up here to Minneapolis. What a beautiful city, and I'm quite honored to be invited to come here. My name is Pedro Jose Greer. Who would name their child Pedro Jose Greer? Well, my father did that, I, and he's still laughing, because that's his name, too. <laughs> Actually, he thought his name was Joseph Raul in Cuba, and as customary in, uh, as was in Cuba, you didn't have to fill the birth certificate out right away. And uh, Greer is of Scots-Irish descent, and I saw the Irish pub down here. We had those in Cuba, too. And my, I think my grandfather, after celebrating, filled out the birth certificate and forgot he named him Pedro Jose Greer. So my father, when he came to the United States, found out his name was not Joseph Raul and just kept it, which was of interest because it represents all the different cultures. If I was in Cuba right now, I'd be the Irish guy. <laughs> and I'm in Minneapolis, I'm the Cuban guy. So, and we were, there, we were talking earlier about uh, my cultural background. I said, I think my family's been kicked out of most decent nations in the world, and we ended up in Miami. But uh, I'm here today to speak to you all about different issues. I'm a, I'm a narrative writer, I'm a storyteller. Being Cuban and being Irish of both of those cultures, we're storytellers. You grow up hearing stories. I was born in the United States by accident. My mother was visiting. We went right by, back to Cuba. That is one of the reasons that the book is entitled Waking Up in America. The other one is seeing actually what I have seen in the world of poverty in our own nation, and which was a, quite a jolt to me. But one of the great things about being an American is being an American, and there's nothing in this country that we can't get together and turn around and resolve. And for those that have much, much is expected, and as such, if that much is education, if that much is financial, if that much is access to get things done, we have to do it, period. And that's the way I was brought up. That's what I believe. I actually listened in civics class and, and bought that whole routine. Um, I, so what I thought I would do is um, tell you some stories, tell you some stories, and then we can get to modern things. I mean, the, the health care situation in the United States right now is an extremely sad state. It's a... HMOs, I say the beauty of HMOs is they've finally been able to prove that communism does not work. The, uh, I come from a region of the country where entrepreneurship extends only in the economic arena, not in the scientific or in the social arena, and as such, there's too much money being made off the public dollar when it should be for the public good, and particularly when we look at our elderly and we look at our poor vulnerable aspects of our society where we have money put away. I have problems in the South, and particularly, and I don't know how it works up here, with profiteers that are taking money away when health care is to be delivered. I have no problem with making money, don't get me wrong. I have no problem with nice things. If you have a Porsche, you could help the poor much quicker. <laughs> but uh, the, uh, the reality is we have to set our priority state. I, as a physician, we take an oath, so I'm somewhat obligated to do what I do. It's individuals like yourselves that go out and help without having taken that oath of the real volunteers and the real hero in our society. But anyways, I, I came to America back in the early 60s when the big wave of, quote, unquote, the exile community, as we call ourselves, my parents' generation, uh, that fled uh, communist Cuba. My father always says that we're the only family that lost nothing when Fidel took over. I said, how's that? He said, well, son, we, we had nothing, so we, we could lose nothing. But uh, my father is the real story. My father's the first one in our family to finish high school, much less go to college or to medical school. And he's 75 years old, and he works every single day. He's still a practicing physician. When I try to get him to take time off, he goes, I will be so bored that I would rather be in the office seeing patients. 
And I remember as a child he telling me that doctors don't retire and what we're supposed to do. And, and the profession of medicine, healthcare delivery, nurses in particular, nurses are the real heroes. Those are the ones that advocate for the patients and they always have. And if you look at the history of taking care of the homeless, it was the nurses that first did it at Pine Street Inn. We doctors, of course, came in and said, well, we could do it better. And of course we haven't, but you know, we'll learn to listen on eventually. But growing up in those times in the 60s and the 70s, being an immigrant family, when you come home, there's still the smell of black beans and, and rice and uh, arroz con pollo, vaca frita, and those are our great dishes, which you can't really translate into English, uh, you know, vaca frita, fried cow. Who would eat a fried cow? Ropa vieja, old clothes. <laughs> Rabo encendido, tail on fire. Yes, I would like that, please. So there's, <laughs> there's a lot of these cultural things going on. But I grew up in that time with the civil rights and then all the movements of which there was a sense of hope. There was a sense of we can make this world better. And my concern today is that we're losing that sense of making it better. Forget the politics, in my honest opinion, forget the politicians. We're Americans, we are the government, only we can make it better. And you learn this through many lessons in your life in this country, and being of the first generation here, I, I'm a fanatic about being an American. Most of us came to this country seeking better lives or freedoms. Afro-Americans, unfortunately, many did not. Their families had not come to this country seeking opportunities. They were brought here without choice. There was an old sociologist once who, right after the Civil War, and although slavery was illegal, there was still slavery going on in a recent arrival of a slave that was now free, asked him if he was wanting to go back to Africa, and he said, oh, no. The sociologist thinking, wow, what a great country we have. He says, you love America? He said, no, I just never want to go on a boat with white people again as long as I live. And uh, so we have to question assumptions and look around and see why people say what they say. At the same time, as you well know, my, country ex my, my parents' country exports a lot of things, cigars and baseball players, okay? So they were shocked that I decided not to play baseball. I'm Cuban-Irish. I play neither baseball nor do I golf. Although I will tell you, ever since the Marlins won last night, I've been a super Marlins fan now for over two weeks. And uh, <laughs> I just think it's great. And I never believed that curse until that poor uh, fan. But after that happened, I said, yeah, there's a curse. And by the way, he has been offered uh, asylum in Miami. And he's more than welcome to come down. The, uh, but I played football. I played football, uh, which I consider a great American sport, at a time when my parents couldn't even pronounce football. Football? You're going to play football? Why would you play football? I, and I happen to have played at the Catholic boys' school, which we had the, um, the worst football team in the history of this country, actually. We, we won one game one game in two years. Uh, we, we, actually, we were so bad that the priest that led our pregame prayers didn't even mention victory. He uh, would pray for no injuries. And as the story goes, and I won't go uh, through the whole story, you can, it's one of the chapters there, actually very short. I fought with my editor to get this in. It was actually, we were playing Miami High, the oldest high school. And it was, our team was so small that most of us had to play both ways. That's, that's offense and defense. And uh, this is, Miami. I mean, back when I was in high school, if you were a crack salesman, you were a good salesman. Now, if you're in Miami and you're a crack salesman, you're not a good salesman. <laughs> you sell crack. Same expressions, different definitions. And um, 
With a minute 30 seconds left in the game, the game is now 20 to 19 and the quarterback calls tackle eligible. The only problem was that I was the tackle. Let me just read you this little paragraph here. And um, tell my age, I have to put on reading glasses. And so there I was in the huddle. And I leaned forward and took my positions. My hands, my arms pressed upon my knees. I heard our quarterback call the play that would define the season, tackle eligible. Problem was, I was that tackle. And on defense, an outside linebacker, but I could feel the elbow pad slip down my sweat-soaked arms. My heart raced with fear and a mix of thrill and doom as I left the huddle and took my place on the field. I prayed every prayer I knew, Spanish and English. That's the advantage of being bilingual. You can get in about 40 Our Fathers in Spanish before you could do one in English. As the ball was snapped, I jumped up the block. I shuffled left and I ran towards the end zone. The rest of the sequence seemed to happen in slow motion. Now, as I'm going through the slow motion, I want you to understand my two cultures. I've been married 22 years. My wife's Irish Catholic. I think I have earned the right to divine, define Irish Catholic. Those are people whose impending sense of tragedy is what holds them together during brief moments of joy. And so, because I was half Irish, I knew that I would drop the ball. But my other half was Cuban, so I had no doubt it was Fidel Castro's fault. I jumped up the block, I shuffled left, and I ran towards the end zone. The rest of the sequence seemed to happen in slow motion. The ball left the quarterback's hand, arched gracefully towards me as, as I leapt into the air and the ball fell safely into my hands. I had jumped up and caught the ball with my hands in the end zone. And I jumped and I jumped and I just kept jumping. We had won 21 to 20. The game was over. They attempted a field goal, but we blocked it. My teammates carried me off the field. I, I was lighter then. Okay. I was, <laughs> I'm now on the non-purging bulimic right now. I got that eating part down. The, uh, a victory had come at last. There we were, the three stooges of high school football, but that night, the night the world shifted, we were homecoming heroes. I had tasted victory. Of course, our team didn't know what to do. We had never won. We had no victory dance. We had no victory cheer. As a matter of fact, we didn't even have a band. This is true. We had five guys with kazoos at halftime. <laughs> but they prepared us for college. <laughs> the, uh, but I think about that night, and I think about sometimes when I go under the bridges or I take care of undocumented aliens that come in to our clinics and how, what game did they win? Where's their sense of hope? What can they relate to about tomorrow? How does that work? What can we offer to a fellow human being to make them believe that there will be a tomorrow and tomorrow will be better? Which is one of the most essential things we need to do in our lives. I went on to play college football. Well, I went, okay, okay, let me, let me rephrase that. I went on to be on a college football team. And it was at the University of Florida, go Gators. We actually won a game, yes, LSU. And because th this was in the early 70s when the Southeastern Conference had just desegregated and the dorms were still maintained somewhat racially pure. And because my last name was Greer, which is a very common Southern black name, I was put in the black half of the dorms. And I got there and I opened the door and my roommate, who was the largest human being ever, ever, period, 
just looked at me and said, shoot. Well, he actually didn't say shoot, but he, this, the three same consonants, a different vowel. And uh, he said, I thought you'd be black. And I weighed my options. And I looked at him and I said, it's worse than you think. I said, I'm Cuban. We look like them, but we dance like you. And so I learned two very important lessons that day. If they're huge, become their friend. And more importantly, if we go through life looking for commonalities instead of differences, we make it a much better world and a much better society. And it's very interesting now, because if you even look at genome research, our DNA structures do not differentiate in race. So, God was right. How about that? He did make us in our image. And the lessons I learned being a kid from a different culture, growing up in a community of many different cultures, in a country that is the epitome of bringing cultures from all over the world and making it work. I mean, America is the greatest social experiment in the history of mankind. And Miami, believe it or not, although I come here, and, and this is what I always envisioned America to be. Truly, it's beautiful. You have town hall meetings. In Miami, we have town hall riots. <laughs> we have guy walks down the street, pulls out a gun, says, give me your money. He says, I'm the mayor. He said, fine, give me my money. The, uh, <laughs> we're, we're catching up. Give us a time. Anything that begins with an E relates to us. Exile, Ileon, elections, you know. <laughs> so, yeah. It's fun down there. The weather's good, <laughs> except in August. And Miami is actually, I believe, more American than any other American city. And the reason is, is because we are what our forefathers said. We are going to get people together. We are going to make them work under a constitution. And you're going to make it work, or you're going to make it fail. We are that experiment. We are on the edge. Granted, granted, maybe our greatest asset is our proximity to America or the fact that we are one of the most promising emerging democracies in this hemisphere. But we'll get there. We'll get to the level of Minneapolis one day. We'll be at the level where we can have this sense of commitment and community. But we're a young city. We just celebrated 100 years in, 18, in 1996, when the first person born in Miami died a year before that celebration. And Miami became a city in 1896 with 120 votes, and interestingly, with only 95 registered voters. So we've maintained that tradition, too, where you might get a 50% voter turnout, we get a 120% voter turnout, and we're pretty proud of that. So in this community, and also the fact that Miami sits in Florida, and Florida sits in the South, and the poorest population of America is in the southern United States. Over 45% of America's poor live in the southern United States. The state of Florida is 50th in public education, 49th in higher education, 49th in social services. I light candles for Arizona every single day. Because if not, we'd be 50th in those arenas. And it's not right. There are certain things that I believe, and I was taught, that government has inherent responsibilities for education, health care, housing, things of that nature, to make sure that its citizenry and its residents are able to have at least the opportunity to seek happiness. And you can't do happiness when you're on the streets, when you're sick, and when you have no sense of tomorrow. So anyways, with all these things going along, 
and those experiences growing up, going through medical school. And she had mentioned about my sister. My sister was my younger sister. Now, if you're of an immigrant family, so a Hispanic family, particularly Cuban family in my case, and you're the only boy, you're in charge of taking care of your sisters. That's your job, period. It's an unwritten rule. It's a told rule, but it's unwritten. And my uh, little sister went off to college, and she wanted to spend her 18th birthday with me. Well, she never made it. She died in a car accident on the way down to spend her birthday and Thanksgiving. Now imagine being 22 years old, 23 years old, being in medical school with the dreams and the passions of the civil rights movements, of all the movements, and ready to save the world. And you can't even save your little sister. You question faith. You question your faith. You question God. You question everything. And you realize that if God lets us be born, he lets us die. But in between, we pretty much have to do everything that's right, because that's the only chance we get. And that she did. At her funeral, there were over 200 elderly individuals, because she used to go and visit the elderly. I never knew she did that. She used to spend her time volunteering in a homeless clinic. I never, I mean, a homeless shelter. I never knew she did that. I found that out years later. What a great kid. And it was at that point that I decided that I never, if I ever got to be a doctor, I never wanted to see anybody suffer or die alone. I had experienced what it was to lose somebody. And a lesson I tell medical students, as well as I believe with myself, when you tell a patient bad news, nobody takes it as bad as their closest family members because they're losing somebody. And that pain, once you feel it, once you know what it is, then you have the empathy for others and you hope to make it a lot softer. Imagine being in that situation and living under a bridge or cleaning somebody's bathroom every day and that's the only job you have and you have no health care, you have no money for medications. It doesn't even matter now. You could have a full-time job and still have no money for medications. There's something wrong with the system. It's not acceptable. And unless we stand up and do something about it, something's wrong. And especially when you look at these great HMO CEOs that are all buying their grand mansions in Florida because we have no taxes. How much health care could that have delivered? How many people would ha not have suffered? And when I started my internship, we did have a gentleman who was dying in the intensive care unit, intubated. With a in other words, a tube down his trachea, breathing form, the tape wrapped around his face, little wristband that had his name on it. He was dying of miliary tuberculosis. That's metastatic tuberculosis, in essence. And it said his name, his date of birth, which didn't quite fit him. He looked a lot older. And it said no address. No address meant that Fireheart Rescue had found him on the streets and brought him in. Best care in the world. This was the early 80s. 24 hours a day, attendings, fellows, residents, interns, medical students, nurses, the technology, but nobody from his family to hold his hand. You knew he had at least had parents. Maybe he had brothers and sisters. Perhaps he had children, a spouse, but nobody knew where he was. And there he lay dying with great technology, and that was it. And I had made that promise to my sister, and you make a promise to God. It's sort of tough you make a promise to God. Where are you going to hide? Well, there's Miami City Hall, because we know God does not go there. And so, but outside of that, there's really nowhere to hide. And you can only eat out of those vending machines for so long. So I went out to find his family. And back in the early 80s, Miami was a lot less compassionate than it is now. There's only three or four shelters, a total of 500 beds in the entire city. And what I found 
was a window into a world I never knew existed in my own backyard. A world that existed of extreme poverty, number one, and of the most dedicated volunteers and caseworkers and social workers I had ever seen in my life. People who maintained a smile. And if you look at some of these old buildings where they were in Miami, although we get great sunlight, they were built with many windows. So you have a lot of shadowing. And as the bodies and the people shuffled around and how they helped them. And that's what I wanted to be like. I wanted to help those people. Those people, because those people are us people. They're human beings. Somebody asked me one time, says, how can you live in both worlds? I said, it's pretty much the same world to me. We divide it up as we like, but it's the exact same world. It doesn't change. The same air, same sun, same elected officials, same streets. It's how we treat people. It's how we judge people or not judge people, which is the appropriate way to say that we do this. So we decided to start a clinic. Back then, 20 years ago, I was young and I was stupid. I'm no longer young. But <laughs> I'm smart enough to know I'm still stupid. I'm stupid enough to know where my skills are and where they're not. I'm a, I'm a clinician. I'm not an administrator. I don't know how to administrate anything. Ask my wife or my office. I, I also know that I knew not what to do. Because we're trained in medical school, we're trained in postdoctoral education, internship, residency, fellowships. But nobody tells us, how do you take care of a diabetic who lives under a bridge? How long do you think those syringes will last down there? Where does he get his diabetic diet? I mean, I'm sure that as the churches are making the sandwiches or he's digging through trash for some scraps, he's figuring out the fat contents. How do you take care of somebody with coronary artery disease when the little package of nitroglycerin, some legal nitroglycerin, says do not expose to heat or light? Folks, it's Miami. There is no area that does not have heat or light. How about if he's got, he's a laborer, a day laborer that's making six or seven bucks a day because they take the rest of the money away. He's got back pain and joint pains and let's give him a non-steroidal anti-inflammatory because it says take after meals. You get one meal a day. Or the patient that came in with a horrible fungal infection of the foot. Simple to take care of, antifungals keep the foot dry. And his answer to me was, Doc, what are you crazy? Have you seen the size of the rats by the rivers in Miami? I can't sleep without shoes on. So we have this knowledge base, but we don't apply it to the reality of the way our society is with certain aspects of our society. So the challenge to the healthcare providers is not diagnosing the disease, but how do we treat those that don't have? We recommend a colonoscopy for everybody from the age of 50 on because colon cancer is the number two leading cause of cancer in the United States of America. Uh, but if you don't have insurance or you're homeless, we'll recommend it to you, but we won't do it. Or your mammograms or any other screening tests that we have in this that we know scientifically and epidemiologically we need to do to take care of our population and public health. But have we become a nation that says we'll take care of you only if you have? Or are we the nation ourselves, which we are, and we say, no, that's wrong, so let's turn around and do what's right. It's not that difficult. So we started a clinic. Four years, we had no funding. We borrowed a lot of things from the hospital, but we figured the patients would take them back as soon as they could. I can say that now. A lot of time has passed. They can't bust me. <laughs> and just do it. It's really that simple. I've had the uh, wonderful experience of 
uh, advising and working under with Lewis Sullivan and uh, the old Bush administration and, and the health care reform and some things after that within the Clinton administration. And I learned that I'm not a Washington kind of guy. Don't put me in front of my, also my wife said that if I ever went in front of a Senate confirmation hearing that I would embarrass our family for generations to come, so I don't know when to shut up. But the truth is, it, it's not about me, it's not about you, it's about all of us and making sure we do the right things. And I always thought that in this country, one of the great ways we do things is do it. My grandmother used to always say, I don't want to hear you complaining about things because if it's that bad, fix it. And if you're not going to fix it, don't, don't say a word, shut up. I don't want to hear that. And that's what we're about. We're about Americans. We're about people that can get together and resolve any problem we want to resolve as long as we're fair and just about it and we sit down and we listen to all the voices and we work hard. Because that's what democracy is about. Now, I've never, I have never not lived. Is that correct? It's my second language. I have never lived in a non-democratic nation. My parents have. And I mean, when I lived in Cuba at the beginning, of the, after, right after the revolution, it was, you're four years old. It's not like the politics really affect you. People, I mean, things I remember about Cuba are basically the backseat of a car as I'm being driven somewhere. My cousin hitting me, that was fun. <laughs> Don't ever take your older cousin's toys, okay? It really upsets them. But the things we all remember when we're little kids. But I do remember that great sense of hope when we did get to this country. And those that are in my generation, I know that from Miami, although we're very proud of our heritage, we're even prouder of the nation we live in and the citizens that we are. And the fact that we can make this country better. Because if we make this country better, we make the world better. And if we make the world better, that's a pretty good little deal there. So we start this clinic, we get funding, we go from 500 visits a year, we now see 10,000 to 15,000 patients, approximately 45,000 visits a year at that clinic. 11 years ago, 12 years ago, we opened a clinic just for undocumented aliens because our public hospital would not take them. They'd have to leave a deposit because they're not residents of the county. How ludicrous is that? Unless it's life or limb. So let's wait until they're dying, then we could take care of them. I remember one Haitian patient we used to take care of with renal failure that they wouldn't put in a, a graft to do dialysis. So we had to, every time he went into failure, we had to put in a Udall shunt to, to basically uh, IV lines to dialyze him. So since we knew where he lived and we always knew where to go, we'd go by and let him know to please show up tomorrow morning through the emergency room and we'll take care of you because we're physicians or we're nurses or we're healthcare providers or we're social workers. And it's not about the system, it's about the human being in front of you. Now I'll have some manager or our medical director tell me, you've got to understand the greater costs. Well, you know what the truth, the way I feel about it? now, I don't have to understand the greater costs. I have to understand my oath and what my job is. And my job is not to sit there and look at a patient in front of me and decide it's greater cost, but decide the greatest therapeutic intervention that I should do for that individual and that individual's family. And it goes only that far, period. Because I'm not worried about if you're homeless and you need a home, or if you have liver failure and you need a, a liver. We have the technology. We decide and we create our own cost basis. We can deal with it that way. But if you're eligible for either one, we should be fighting for you to get that. And throughout the years, we had the clinic. It kept growing. It's growing to the point now where we're 18,000 square feet, which in all reality, folks, is the greatest failure of my life. Because to be successful in what I do in this arena of working with the poor would be to have those clinics become obsolete. 
the greater the size of the clinic, the greater the failure of the society of which I am an integral member of. So I take no pride in saying that we've tripled the space of our clinic or we've created new clinics. That's not a sense of pride. That's a sense of shame in my aspect because what have I done really to help stem this problem? The city of Miami, we are number one in the country in poverty, number one. Number two in football, but number one in poverty, number one in the National League in baseball. I just want to bring that up for any Cubbies fan here, okay? The, uh, but we are number one in poverty. Ten years ago, we were number four, 1990 uh, to year 2000, the census. The, the cities, the three cities ahead of us, it wasn't that we became poor, it's that the other three cities decided to make policies to take care of the issue with poverty. The only time we do something about it with our elected officials in Miami, with all due respect, is when it hits the front page of the Miami Herald or the New York Times. Then we, they meet together, have a press conference, and that's it. We just spent five years and $5 million of a Kellogg-funded grant in Miami to help change health care policy. What a political battle, even just to get data and information. Uh, but since I have no political affiliations, except this great nation, and my other political affiliation is being a physician, We'll do what we need to do, and we fight for what we need to fight, and we're going to make it better. And it's not a battle that's going to end tomorrow, because there's always issues. That's how society are, is, and that's what we need to do. Well, our clinic grew, 45,000 visits. We opened a clinic also in Overtown. You guys might be familiar with Overtown. We've had a few riots there in an elementary school. And this is a clinic based in a school, not a school-based clinic. This is a clinic for the entire community to bring the parents in. Why aren't we innovative in our thoughts? Like they keep saying, think outside the box. Why is it that every time I sit up in Washington or anywhere and discuss issues of health care and the poor, there's nobody poor at the table? The diversity of the table is I'm the Hispanic guy, they got a black guy, they got an Asian guy, they have the women's, they have the Native Americans. We're all college educated. We all pretty much drive the same cars, read the same books. Our diversity is cultural. How about socioeconomic diversity in this country? When are they going to be included to sit at the table? My father's the first one in our family to finish high school, much less go to college. Don't tell me that those that don't have can't achieve much. They can achieve great. That's the great American story. Why are we blocking it? Why aren't they sitting at our tables? Why aren't we listening? Why do we so often believe that we have the monopoly on the truth because we had formal education? Well, the reason I think that our homeless clinics and our undocumented alien clinics were so good was because I never had formal training in public health, so I had no idea what the hell I was doing. So we had to bring in people, i.e. patients, and ask them, what's going on? When the AIDS epidemic hit, we were the first ones to publish a paper, which we presented up at the uh, International AIDS Conference, the second one in Montreal, showing clearly that one of the big risk factors for HIV was poverty. This was 1984, 85. And when we started to approach that population with AIDS and exposure, uh, that they could be exposed to AIDS, and we brought in the people with AIDS Coalition and all that, which was mostly a white, middle-class, uh, male, gay population. Their transmission of the disease and how they got it was a little different than what was going on on the streets. And when we asked them on the streets, they were talking to us about sex for drugs, drugs for money, money for sex. And you know what? This was the 80s when crack was an epidemic. And you could say this, you could say whatever you want about it, but it's an addiction, it's a disease, and people were dying from both the dis disease of the addiction and the diseases that they got because of the addiction. 
And as physicians, we were entitled to go out and help them, period. And as a society, we are obligated to make sure that it's as safe as it could possibly be. Because I'll tell you what, if one of my physician brethren had a drug problem, he'd get to go into a program. But if you're poor and you're in Miami and you have a drug program, I'm mean, a drug problem, there is no program. Or there's a 30, 40, 60 day wait. Oh, that's a great idea to tell a drug addict. Come back in 60 days and don't do drugs. Okay, doc, thanks, sir. That'll work. I remember one medical student one time telling one of the patients in there that was a crack addict saying, you know, crack is bad for you. And I'm saying, I think he figured that out. He lives under the bridge. Nobody wants to be an addict, folks. Nobody draws drugs the first time because they're looking forward to addiction. Nobody takes their first beer or their first drink because, you know, they want to be an alcoholic. This is that it's human nature not to live in moderation. And we just have to be disciplined or help out or say no to certain things. But that's how we do it. Within the clinics that we've built, the experiences that I've had that have been most enlightening to me have been the interactions I have had with patients with people that don't have, that don't have the advantage of what I have had, education, financial security. Those that when I sit under a bridge when my wife was pregnant with my son and there's a woman there pregnant with her child and we both share concern about the future of our children, I'm worried about where they'll go to college. She's worried about if they have a house to sleep in. Or when a little homeless girl comes into the clinic with her mother who's Cuban, her father who's Mexican, who live in a car and she tells me she wants to be a doctor. What a great dream for a child. But let's be realistic, folks. State of Florida, 50th in public education. She's homeless. Do you think she's going to get the educational basis to apply competitively to any graduate program? Do you think that it's fair that in our society we don't offer our children that? The Dade County School Board where I come in decided to give away $7 million to their buddies, public education dollars. When are we as a nation going to sit there and say when somebody gets caught doing something that's corrupt or unethical or immoral, instead of saying, oh, they got caught, when are we going to just say, it was wrong? Nixon resigns. It was wrong. Not that he got caught. It was wrong. And I'm not going to accept it when it is wrong because it could affect my children or my children's children or my neighbor's kids or somebody in this world is going to be adversely affected because somebody wanted to do something that wasn't right. We need to stand up and say, it is wrong, and we're not going to accept it anymore. Sorry. There is no excuse. You want that position? Fine. You sit on the board of a company, your CEO does something corrupt, steals some money, what are you going to say? Oh, that's okay. We'll give you another chance. Your contract lasts two more years. You're going to say it's wrong. You're out of here. So why aren't we doing that publicly? Why aren't we demanding with public dollars that I just sat with the Governor Bush up in Tallahassee when I was asked, what do I think we should do about the health care issue? I said, well, from a state perspective, let me tell you what I feel. Public dollars, public good, simple concept. Medicare, Medicaid. You want to make money out of it? Make your money out of it. Profit. I mean, you should make a good living. But you know what? I want you to prove that you're doing the work that needs to be done. Because when you decide to go into health care or social services, you have two responsibilities. The most important one is to the person you're taking care of. The second one is to the person that's allowing you to do that, and generally that's the person that's helping you financially, whether it's a private donor or it's you and I as taxpayers. I have no problem with taxes as long as they're used appropriately. I have a problem with taxes when somebody's buying a big old house with my tax dollar when somebody should be helped. 
whether it's fixing the road, paying the police department, or the infrastructure of a society, or the social and medical programs. We should be demanding that our tax dollars are used appropriately, and those that are delivering the care have to deliver the outcomes that make it work. Going through the years in the clinic and seeing many and making the clinic grow, one goes across in their life where you have many catalysts. One of the catalysts in my life was obviously the death of my sister. Every day I thank my father for that good choice, America. Because so many of my friends that I, ha I now have whose family left in exile ended up in Nicaragua, Honduras, different European countries. Some of them have gone through two or three other revolutions. I said, come on to America. It's pretty good here. We're stable. We have a good history. The other one was, I was shocked that my wife actually said yes and to marry me 22 years ago. That was a great coup. The, uh, although she will tell me it's the best three, maybe four years of her life. I had, and we have two great children. I have my daughter, 18, who's studying philosophy in college. She'll be the best red in the welfare line. The, um, who's wonderful, who uh, spent last summer in Ecuador with uh, her old school where they did a summer camp for an orphanage up in the mountains in Ecuador, and I, which I just found out from my wife. I'm supposed to go with her next summer, and I call up my daughter in Boston. I said, uh, Mom says uh, I'm supposed to go down with you to Ecuador. Well, Dad, I told you last summer they had no health care. I said, I know, Alana, but you never told me I was delivering the health care. <laughs> so it's the beauty of her dreams. It's her desire to make the world better. I have a 15-year-old son. I have an 18-year-old daughter going on 40 and a 15-year-old boy going on three. The uh, big old kid, he's six feet tall. He's blonde hair, blue-eyed, Joey Greer. He goes, how are they going to know I'm Cuban? I said, dance. Just dance. I They'll know right away, and uh, he's a great kid. Also trying to make people happy and laugh. He wants to be a comedian. He's wonderful. And if we go through life understanding the gifts that God has given us, education, family, the fact that we live in this great nation, the fact that we can help others, and realize how comfortable we really are, and listen, and listen to those that don't have. When I walk under the bridge, I know they didn't win a football game. What makes them think about tomorrow? Because the homeless are the poor that get poor. And I think one of the mistakes over the last 20 years I have done is use the term homeless because once again I've labeled a group. And the truth is it's not about labeling people, it's about an overall issue of poverty, which is a relative measure. My wife will clearly tell you that we're impoverished compared to the thoracic surgeons. But then again, everybody's impoverished compared to the thoracic surgeons, except for Bill Gates. And it's about listening, about learning. It's about what Socrates once said, question assumptions. It's about just observing. Take the time to sit down and watch. Take a note. It was a Tuesday night at the clinic when a young woman in a tattered red dress came in. She was about 25 years old, but she seemed a lot older. The lines of her battle-weary face barely concealed beneath a smudge of stale makeup, her soiled clothes, a swath of spandex told the story of her hard life on the streets. Her eyes revealed her turmoil. Whatever her story, she deserved a bath and a rest. That night I was working with third and fourth year medical students and I sent Carlos into a room two, he's a third year student, where the patient sat weeping. Within minutes, Carlos came rushing out. Dr. Gurry said, I can't get a story out of her. I said, what's the problem? He said, she won't stop crying. I said, do you think it's physical, drugs, emotional? He says, I don't know, as he opened up the chart. It says here she's been once, here once before for some dermatologic problems. 
No psych problems. Does say she smokes cracks. Must be the perks of prostitution. I stepped into the exam room and we found a desperate woman. She was trembling. I extended my hand to greet her. We doctors do something very special and very sacred. We touch other people. And it has to be done with the utmost of respect. Although we Cubans, when we greet, it's sort of, i got to tell you a funny story. Let me just deviate a second. <laughs> when we're little kids and we meet a young girl, you could be two years old or 12 or 20, you kiss them on the cheek. The Europeans kiss twice. I think in the Middle East they kiss three times. I say that's fine as long as you don't stop in the middle. And uh, when, I got away to, when I went away to college at the University of Florida, that was not a North Florida custom, let me tell you. Met a young woman, went to kiss her on the cheek. I can still remember the whistling sound her hand made. As it came across, I said, this is not something you want to do here. So you learn, and it was interesting because when we were down in Guantanamo teaching the, uh, the Haitian and the Cuban refugees down there about life in America, we made up what we call the 18-inch rule. Stay away 18 inches from another human being. Because we, we, we sit together, you know, well, you, you, I kiss my dad, my dad and my son kisses me, I kiss my son. It's, we're kissy kind of people. That's in the islands. And culture in North America is not quite that way. We're here to help you. Do you hurt somewhere, I asked, gently nudging her elbow to give her a sense of stability. She was full of tears, gasping for air. It hurts down here, she said between sobs, holding her lower abdomen and doubling over. It feels like it's burning. It won't stop. Please help me, please. After examining her and listening to her story, we concluded she had pelvic inflammatory disease and other sexually transmitted diseases. It'll be okay, I told her, trying to offer her a little assurance. Slowly, she began to tell us why she had really come to the clinic when she could have gone to the gynecologist at the public health unit. I was raped raped hard last night, she said, as she doubled over again in tears and in shame. Why didn't you go to the rape treatment center at Jackson last night, I, I asked. After all, it's less than a mile away and it's a top-notch center. Doctor, she said, with a look that suggested I should know the answer to my own question, look at me. Look at how I'm dressed. Then she paused and she broke into tears again. I couldn't take the comments that people would make. So we have a society, or at least down in my community, where because she was poor, she had nowhere to go, and the place she could go, because we're so willing to make comments about others that look a little different, or dress a little different, inhibited her after she had been violated. And she was right. What an important lesson I learned. She was right. We're not here to judge people. I was a physician. I'm here to judge their medical condition and how to approach it therapeutically, but that's it. See, we, we have this mammoth system of healthcare, and we offer excellent medicine and the best technology, but we, we offer no solace, no empathy, no protection from prejudice. That's because when we build great buildings, there's one thing you can't build into a building, and that's a heart, and that's a soul, and that's us. A building won't do that. An institution will, institution will not do that. We as human beings, we as the ones that are out there to help others, we're the only ones that can do that. So I learned that, yes, quote unquote, a homeless hooker has a lot to teach us all if we just listen. And I'm going to end up right now with a story that I always end up with because this was one of the major little interactions I had in my life. One afternoon around lunchtime, I walked into the clinic with a sandwich. 
I greeted the patients in the waiting room and walked over to the pediatric area where I found a mother with three of her children. They told me they had come in from the Salvation Army shelter. Her youngest child caught my eye. He was six years old, a little boy with a sweet smile. I offered him my bag lunch, which he graciously accepted. He took the sandwich out of the bag and he split it in half. He took two bites out of one half and slipped both parts back into the bag. Then he carefully folded the bag and he put it in his pocket. I couldn't figure out why he did that. I've done three postdoctoral fellowships. I'm a MacArthur Fellow. I've had professors that were Nobel Prize laureates. I didn't understand anything they said, but they were still my professors. And here's a homeless kid. Now, imagine what it's like to be a homeless child. Your dad's probably not there. If you're from Miami, your mother probably has no education. You get to live in a car and or a shelter. If you have a bad day at school, you really have no private time with your mom because we're shelters. It's charity, big tables. Mom gets mad at you and believe me, she'll be frustrated in her condition or her situation. She'll reprimand you publicly. If you're in school and they say draw a house, what are you gonna draw, a car or shelter? And what do we give these kids? We give them what our kids don't like. I always ask my kids, what, you know, what are you going to give for this Christmas? Well, this, this, and this. Well, you don't like that. Why are you giving it away? Why don't you give something you do like? Or is it just because it's no good anymore? And if they're sick, they get to come to our clinic, where everybody knows it's the clinic for poor folks. Same doctors, but still the clinic for those poor folks. And one Christmas, and this is where I say question assumptions by Socrates, one Christmas, we asked these children, what do you want for Christmas? And you know what they told us? Socks and underwear. Nobody donates socks and underwear. Who wouldn't have thought? We take it for granted. We all have these things, unless you're homeless. And I looked at that little boy, I said, why'd you do that? And his reply stunned me. It's for my brothers, he said. He was hungry, but he knew that they were as hungry as he was. God has allowed me to study medicine to explore the depths of disease and its treatment. He's given me brilliant professors and inspiring mentors. He has opened the tombs of healing and placed in my hands the most precise instruments of modern technology. And on any random afternoon, he has extended the most remarkable postgraduate opportunities. He's allowed me to find him in the gentle lull of the city of Miami, under a bridge in an emergency room, in the waiting room of a neighborhood clinic, in the wisdom and humanity of a homeless child. And if I leave today with one message, it's not just if they're really huge, become their friend. The real message I want to leave you with is, why don't we all aspire to become that six-year-old child? And then maybe, just maybe, we can make this world a little bit better. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Pedro Jose Greer. Dr. Greer has spoken to us today about health care initiatives to aid poor populations. We extend our gratitude to him and to you, our listeners and supporters. Join us again on November 20th when the Westminster Town Hall Forum will host the Guthrie Theater's artistic director, Joe Dowling. Thank you.
make them easy questions. Make them multiple choice answers. We do have time now to take some questions. And while ushers are collecting questions from the audience here, we'd like to remind the Westminster that remind you that the Westminster Town Hall forums are free and open to the public. And we would like to thank again the sponsors for today's forum, the University of Minnesota's Academic Health Center, the General Mills, Kellogg, Star Tribune, Nash, Baker, and George Family Foundations, as well as the Skyway News. We're also grateful to our many individual donors. And now, Dr. Greer, if you will return to the podium, will we begin the questions? Can I like skip to the next question if I don't know the answer? First one, you mentioned that you attended a Catholic high school. Yeah. Do you have a religious faith that guides you in the work you do? And would you advocate any kind of faith-based healthcare services? Well, I'm, uh, first of all, yes, I, I think, I'm, I'm driven by my faith, very much so. Uh, and I think most of us are in this nation and in this world. Uh, do I advocate faith-based? Uh, yes, I do. I, I advocate not-for-profit in the healthcare arena and faith-based for a simple reason. You, hire, you, you answer to a higher being. Uh, having said that, there are certain aspects of healthcare and things like that that need to be followed and rules need to be followed all the way through. But as long as you have the right mission and you always follow your missions and any faith base, regardless of your faith, it doesn't matter, Christian, Jewish, Hindu, Buddhist, Islam, Californian. Well, that's not a really good faith-based one. We saw that there. But I mean, you do need to follow, a, and I'm, a, I'm an advocate for that. That does not preclude other non-faith-based, as long as they have the right mission. Do you feel that universal health care coverage is a viable way to close the gap concerning coverage and treatment in this country? I, I think as a general answer, yes, it is. The problem is that we have 50 states, 50 systems. And if you live in the South, the systems are controlled not by the state but by the county, as you saw in the elections of the year 2000. So it becomes a very complex issue. I do think that a very viable answer that could be done even quicker would be a single-payer system, get rid of all the middle people, distribute the monies uh, appropriately, and everybody gets health care. There is no reason at all, period, stop, that every single person within this nation should not have coverage and access to health care. There is no reason. How can we all, as citizens, get involved in efforts for better health care for all? First of all, never be quiet. Never be quiet. Health care is a sort of funny thing. I remember after uh, starting my training, how exciting it was in the year and all that, and my buddies from college that didn't go into health care had no interest whatsoever in that world of medicine unless you're sick or a family member's sick. Well, I think we've all experienced either ourselves or a family member being sick, and we know the importance of that, and it's not something we can ignore. I say be very careful with the profiteers. I say, in particularly, the most vulnerable of our populations, the poor and the elderly. And I say that because those are the two at greatest risk for disease. One is because of the simple aspect of aging. You will get arthritis, believe me. The, uh, and why? are those in our population can't even afford medications. This is the most ludicrous thing I have ever seen in my life. And so, no, it's not acceptable. And uh, I forgot the question. I just rambled on there. But no, whatever it is, no. You, I, <laughs> I'm sorry. It's a Cuban thing in me, all right? I'm just going to tell you, no, it's, it's not acceptable. You've got to 
I, I'm still shocked by it. We, we have to sit down and work this out. Not work this out as to who's going to make what piece of the pie. But the question cannot be, as it was in the Clinton administration, it's the economy, stupid. How do we make health care cheaper? The appropriate policy question was, how do you make people healthier? And if you ask that question, you come to a completely different answer. And perhaps that answer is not just in the health care changes. Education, transportation, employment, housing. I mean, th those are all factors that lead into it. So we have to look at this as not linearly as we do with housing, health care, but globally and integrate them all together. So now you just heard a ranting cube in there. Okay, sorry. How do the mentally ill homeless get the health care that they need? Well, not in Dade County. The, uh, because we have a very poor mental health system. Actually, it's about one-third. Uh, Audrey Berman probably published the best paper on that, 28% severely uh, mentally ill, but that, I would still say that would be half of what you see at city commissions. The, um, the reality is it's not just mental illness, there's dual diagnosis, and there's all the physical illnesses that go along with it, too. And how do they seek that care? Taking care of the poor. My wife asked me the other day, as the mentioned that the Pope was very sick, that it must be so hard to be the Pope's doctor. I said, no, that would be easy. You have all the backup in the world and all the resources you need. What must be hard would be to be the doctor for somebody that doesn't have in an area where you don't have access to things. And the complexity of taking care of somebody that is poor, that is uneducated, without comprehensive uh, skills and things like nature, means that we have to work harder to take care of that person. and means that we have to set up the base with better education in the past. And when those that are mentally ill, you have to be careful because those with dual diagnosis, as they'll clearly tell you under the bridge, you could deal my, with my addiction, but then if you don't deal with my bipolar disorder, then I'm back on the streets doing drugs. So it's very complex. It's not that simple as one entity. There's a, there's, there's a whole group of uh, disorders and diseases that we have to take care of, as with every human being. A hot topic in Minnesota has been uh, people taking buses to can Canada to have affordable um, to go to affordable pharmacies there. We have now reached the point where healthcare and pharmaceuticals are being priced out of the range of not just the poor, but also the elderly and the middle class, just about everyone but the very wealthy. Do we need to have in this country an entirely new discussion about how to provide healthcare? Oh, 100%. I, th I think that what we try to do is everybody wants to change. Everybody in the healthcare arena thinks that their area is okay, everybody else has to change. Well, everybody's got to come to the table and everything has to change. I, I heard a description of Canada once, America light, Americans with health insurance and no guns. The, uh, the, uh, you guys are lucky here. You can go in a bus to Canada. But uh, there was that scandal years ago where the VA medical system got the same drugs at almost half the price as the rest of the pharmaceutical world. I understand business and all that. But when you're in the business of producing medications that alleviate suffering or save human life, profit has to take a second, a second step. And let me tell you, it's not like they don't have great margins in these companies. Cut the margins a little bit, you'll do fine. And we could probably afford it for everybody. And so. Well, thank you, Dr. Greer, for being here at the Westminster Town Hall Forum.